as I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey. You're listening to the Topic and Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Wanted to kind of greet everybody this, this morning and afternoon and evening. And I say that because literally it's uh, tomorrow in Australia. And folks often think about, it's, you know, Christmas time, we just get over it, over uh, Thanksgiving and Eastern Standard Time, Daylight Savings Time. But we're talking to, I'm going to talk to uh, Dr. Fred McKinney in a few few seconds. And just this, this issue of time is, is still fascinating me, <clears throat> not to mention the time that's going on in the Middle East, but what, what is our place in time as a historical agents? And what, how do you perceive your place uh, in this unfolding, his history and her story? But time kind of impacts that. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to read uh, somewhat of an extensive amount of Dr. McKinney's uh, background, which I normally do not do, but in terms of the Tom Ficklin show, I've been blessed to have a lot of, yeah, an increasing number in terms of audience share of young people, folks in their teens, 20s, 30s, just getting out of college, deciding where to go to college. And Dr. McKinney's background is, is so, uh, I think, intriguing and inspirational to folks. And obviously, I think people need to know, <laughs> know, know, know about him. Uh, uh, doc, and people, people, people talk, talk, call him uh, uh, Dr. Fred, and I, so I'll kind of go back and forth with Dr. Fred and, and, and Dr. Fred McKinney. But, but Dr. Fred, by the way, uh, we're going to talk about um, Ralph Bunch mm. also, because you, you're undergraduate from, from, from UCLA in, in connection with uh, your, your thoughts on the Middle East crisis. But, but Dr. Fred McKinney received his, his doctorate in economics from Yale University in 1983. I dare say, Dr. Fred, that in 1983, there couldn't have been more than 20 or 30 Black people to have received their their, their doctorate in, in economics. I'm just I'm just saying that there weren't that many. I'm, I'm positive. No, uh, not. He, right. has, he has taught and worked at Sacred Heart University here in Connecticut, uh, Brandeis in Massachusetts, and it's important for people to know just his his uh, extensive experience because as we as I shut up after a, a minute or two and and give him a chance to talk about the Middle East crisis. He's been around the track, around a few tracks. And so I really appreciate his being available. But um, Brandeis University taught at University of Connecticut School of Business and Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business. Uh, I, I initially met Dr. Fred, I believe it was when he were president of the Greater New England Minority Supplier Development Council um, for, a, for a number of years, uh, uh, that's from 2001 to, to 2015. Um, and I mentioned Yukon and, and, and Brandeis, as I say. Um, but also early on in his career, I uh, was a graduate assistant at the White House, uh, Council of Economic Advisors. We don't hear so much about the Council of Economic Advisors today. They're still in existence and certainly still needed, but from 1978 to 1979. Uh, in fact, there was a black lady that was formerly uh, head of the Council of Economic Advisors under the Biden administration who resigned a few months ago. And also he worked with the Rand Corporation. The Rand Corporation, uh, summer in 1977 to 1978. I mentioned that Dr. Fred because 
We don't hear much about the RAND Corporation now, but certainly when we were in our college days and graduate school days and early professional life, the RAND Corporation's uh, involvement with geopolitics, international politics, CIA experiments, uh, uh, fight, fighting wars overseas. It's just the RAND Corporation was kind of a, a uh, people threw darts at them on the liberal side about their involvement, but you you may be the spook to set behind the door. I, I better shut up and let you <laughs> let, let you not that read. But uh, he's he's also operated a number of of um, of ventures pertaining to the coffee industry. We know how coffee is and is a uh, well, it is an addiction, but it certainly does provide some pleasure. Um, wanted to mention, guess in, in conclusion, that Dr. Fred um, has authored over, over has authored four books and literally over sixty articles pertaining to minority business development, corporate supplier diversity, and social, economic, and political nuances. And that's why I wanted to kind of uh, take up some of his time because he wrote an article recently in the Connecticut Post uh, talking about this, literally this crisis in the Middle East. And I'm just, my spirit tells me this is just so impactful about what the future holds for the younger folks. Um, this issue is not gonna go away and we, we have to kind of I think educate, share, love, protest, do whatever you can as a as a historical agent to kind of uh, bring peace on earth as we encounter this this period between now and, and uh, Christmas and Hanukkah in terms of bringing um, peace on earth, goodwill toward women, children, and and men. Dr. Fred, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's great to be with you, and I've uh, been looking forward to this call. Walk us, walk us through a little bit of the, the Connecticut Post article. Sure. I was so intrigued in terms of the uh, the historical parallels, and hopefully those historical par parallels won't lead to continued dead ends. But I think it's important to people to know that we, we may be, uh, as a society, addicted, addicted to war, or we may not we may uh, may not be able to find an anecdote. But I don't, don't want to put words in your mouth. So mm -hmm. talk to talk to us about that article a little bit, if you would. Well, first of all, you know when you when you write you when you and I'm not saying this was a great article or even a good article, but when you write, you are often inspired by something. Mm. And in this case, uh, the inspiration for this article, and I write a column every other week for the Hearst Media newspapers, but uh, this was an article that a that I've been thinking about ever since October 7th, mm. when you had the Hamas attack on, on the Israeli citizens. And uh, I was really frustrated with the coverage that we were getting uh, in what you was called essentially the mainstream media, mm -hmm. um, and that includes, you know, all of them yes. <laughs> from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the MSNBCs, the CNNs, the Foxes. They all were very similar in the same bucket, taking. The pers an, an ahistorical perspective and a, a very lopsided perspective on um, what was taking place. And specifically, there was no historical context to mm -hmm. what we were seeing with our own eyes. And, and so that, that uh, led me to say, you know, I, I, and I'll first admit, I am no Middle Eastern expert. Um, and but you know, as a as a as a lifelong learner, mm -hmm. um, you know you can uh, you can learn a lot. That's right. You, 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 learning is possible. 
Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if you're willing to do a little reading and, and, and other type of research, you can, you can get a sense of where things were and how we got to where we are. And you can look at how different experts and, and observers uh, are viewing things. And so I basically engaged in, I said, before I write a piece, I'm going to really engage in some research to find and to develop my perspective. So it's a more mature perspective, mm. one that I can defend mm -hmm. because um, I thought a lot of what I was seeing on in the news was really indefensible mm. on the part of, of how things were being portrayed. And then the, the other motivation was was purely political. I was looking at, you know, the not just the the troubles in uh, in Palestine and Israel, but, you know, how those things relate to uh, what's going on here in the United States. Yes. Uh, in particular, you know, we have a presidential election and a whole set of elections coming up in 2024. And, you know, one of the leading candidates, the former president, uh, who's been four times indicted, 91 counts, twice impeached, uh, is the front runner mm -hmm. in the other major U.S. political party. And therefore has a has a shot more mm -hmm. than a, a, what they would call a, a you know, a puncher's uh, a shot at at winning that seat back. And, you know, I view that as an existential threat mm -hmm. to the United States uh, and the United States democracy and the potential of the United States to be the type of country that it can be and should be. So here you have this intersection of a horrific uh, long run, long term event that's been taking place and it's not just october 7th and that's what my my learning uh really shit you know helped me to to articulate and to understand better is that this didn't start with october 7th this goes way back <laughs> and mm -hmm. i mean you can keep unraveling the 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 onion but i i really think you know if you want to look at you know the most recent history uh, you have to go go back really to you know the the first world war, yes, and and understand you know what was taking place in the first world war, and the and the outcome of after the first world war with the victory of the English the Allied forces over the um, the Axis forces led by Germany, uh, Turkey um and some other countries and so um one of the results of that was that the ottoman empire had had been a sense they were a colonial they were a colonial empire mm, mm -hmm. just just like other you know european empires and american empires uh and one of the the colonies that was controlled by the by the ottomans now we call the turks was what we call what they called Palestine. Mm -hmm. And so with their defeat in the First World War, the British took it over. Mm -hmm. And so they kicked the Turks out and the British took it over. And uh, you know, there was already simultaneous, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. 
At the same time, you had, you know, the the, the First World War. Um, you also had um, a, a good deal of anti-Semitism taking place at the first at the time at the time of the First World War and before. It was taking place more so in Russia than it was in Germany. Mm. You had lots of Jews who fought for the German army in the First World War, and mm -hmm. they were loyal Germans. Um, and you had American Jews who didn't want to support the Allies because Russia in the First World War was an ally mm. to the United States. We were mm -hmm. allies with Russia in mm -hmm. World War I and World War II. Mm -hmm. But during that time frame, you had also the development of Zionism. Uh, and you know this has been an idea for a while, but it really got took hold. Yes, and so you had some Jewish leaders, primarily in Germany, but also in Russia and other places around Europe and America, that were were looking uh, to to essentially escape from the European anti-Semitism that they were experiencing, and you know they were looking for a homeland. Mm -hmm. And and so where they where they found where they found a a place was uh they were they were looking at three places, quite frankly. They were looking at Argentina, they were looking at Uganda, and they were looking at Palestine. They actually sent a mission, the, the European Zionists sent a mission to Uganda to check it out, and they concluded, no, I don't think we can live here. <laughs> I mean, imagine what would have happened if this had been, if they had moved to Uganda as opposed to Palestine today. <laughs> but they settled on they settled on Palestine. Um, but at that time, well, who was in Palestine? Palestinians were in Palestine, and at at the end of the mm -hmm. First World War, mm -hmm. uh, the Jews represented a very small minority of the population in Palestine. You know, then you can sort of fast forward to, okay, you got this Zionist movement that was a worldwide movement that was moving, trying to get Jews from Europe primarily to move to Palestine. Fast forward to the Second World War. You have the Holocaust, added pressure now anti-Semitism is, is focused now on the Nazis in Germany. And as a result of the, uh, the Holocaust, the Jews of Europe said, you know, many of them said, we got to get out of here, mm -hmm. which was understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, they needed, they wanted to escape. And so they, you know, they're, this is where the Zionist movement, the, the consequences of the Holocaust, the Second World War, the British takeover of Palestine and this desire to essentially uh, be someplace where they could, uh, you know, have a country of their own or mm -hmm. experience the, the, you know, the, the hatred that they had experienced in Europe. Problem was there were people in Palestine when after the second world war, you had large movements of of Jews to to Israel, mm -hmm. and you know some of this is guilt in my view, European guilt over their treatment of the Jews uh, during the 30s and 40s. Mm. 
And so the UN, which comes into play now, uh, in one of the first major acts they have is in 1947-48. They basically say, you know, we're going to um, allow this the state of Israel to be created. Yes. And and so that gave it sort of a formal legal um you know structure to create this. But as I said, there were people there. And so how do people from Europe come into this area and all of a sudden just start literally taking the land buying the land in some cases, but often just taking the land, that created a war. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so this war, you know, goes back decades between the Zionists and the Palestinians who were there at the time the Zionists arrived. In, indeed, Dr. Frieden, when you mentioned the war, um... People often talk about Black history and not just being a month, but but an everyday experience. Uh, but as you know, your your Bruin UCLA fellow alumni right wins the uh, Nobel Prize wins a Nobel Prize for trying to resolve this issue, Mr. Ralph right. Bunch. I often ask people who Ralph Bunch is, and only one out of ten, one out of twenty people will kind of remind me. But 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 please continue. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, this was, this was a, a, a dilemma that um, I think um, that's the recent aspects of the dilemma, the October 7th on, which is what's in the news now, which has gotten everybody's attention. But I think you have to have a historical context, mm -hmm. not to absolve anyone or any group from any act that is really counter to our sort of basic humanity. Mm -hmm. But you have to look at the historical context to understand what's going on and why we're seeing the things that we're seeing. I even mentioned to folks, uh, I'll say Andy Young, and don't, you know, mm -hmm. people know some, some of what he did and what, and I'll say, do you remember that he was uh, United Nations ambassador to the United Nations? And some people might say yes. Then I'll say, do you remember that he that he had to resign? Very few people remember that he had to resign because they're trying to reach out to to the Arafat and others to kind of That's right to, to, to negotiate. And so this has been a third rail of American foreign policy. The whole Israeli conflict has been a third rail. If you are not jumping on the full-throated Zionist bandwagon. And so, you know, we have a, as we, the United States has a special relationship with the state of Israel. Uh, they are the largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid. Uh, even before the $14 billion that Congress um, agreed to provide that was requested by the Biden administration for Israel recently because of October 7th, they were receiving about almost $4 billion a year from the United States. And you say, well, what does that money buy? And so I looked into that. The money buys weapons. Mm. Okay. And so this is the deal that we have. 
Uh, we U.S. taxpayers provide billions of dollars to Israel so they can buy weapons made by U.S. companies, weapons like you heard a lot maybe about the Iron Dome. Well, those, mm -hmm. those weapons are made in the United States. The aircraft that is being used to bomb Gaza, those, those planes, for the most part, they have over 200 highly sophisticated airplanes made by U.S. companies. The bombs that those planes are dropping made in the United States. Uh, so that's the deal. So we give them money. They take that money and give it back to us. And in exchange, we give them weapons. Mm. And those weapons are used right now to essentially kill Gazans by the hundreds. And so uh, this was upsetting to me as a U.S. taxpayer. Uh, you know, we are supporting the gov our, our government is supporting something that I think that there were legitimate alternatives to uh, how this was handled. And mm -hmm. we're not using that influence to curtail the Israeli actions. I mean, you heard a lot about in the beginning of this current conflict that Biden was close to Netanyahu, hugging him mm -hmm. and embracing him and saying, we support you fully. But at the same time, he was whispering in his ear, you know, be careful, be careful. Don't do this. Don't do that. Well, they didn't listen. It doesn't look like they listened to any of those uh, whisperings by the president. And here's where it comes back to sort of U.S. domestic policy. I think, and just this is showing in some of the polls, Mm -hmm. and it's not just black Americans. There's a lot of Americans who don't like our dollars being used in this way mm -hmm. uh, and don't see this in, in the one-sided way that the current administration and many in the media view it as, you know, Israel should flatten them, you know, uh, essentially commit genocide. Right. And And so I have a problem with that. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote in the article that, you know, what resonates, it can resonate. You mentioned, you know, some people may know, some people may not know. Well, they need to know. Mm. Uh, they need to know not only the the connection between what's going on in Israel and Gaza and similarities between aspects of our history as Black Americans and what's going on with Gazans and Israelis. So Indeed. Black Americans, we have, you know, I was born in Jim Crow, Arkansas in 1954. Okay, so, um, you know, I, I experienced the Jim Crow. Um, and what is going on in not just Gaza, but in West Bank and in Israel and in Gaza is similar to our experiences in the Jim Crow South. Mm. It's actually more similar, and I bring this up in the article, to the experiences of South Africans during the apartheid era. Mm. And, and so the one of the main points of my article is that this 
you know, everybody's talking about we got to get back to the two-state solution. The two-state solution is the solution to this problem. And I say, BS. Mm. It, there, it, there is no, there cannot be a two-state solution to this problem because the Zionists will not allow a two-state solution. If you look, and I encourage people to do this, look at a map of, of the Israel-Palestine region. Look at Gaza, look at the West Bank, look at Jerusalem, where it is. Mm. And if you look at, just focus on the West Bank for a second. If you look at the West Bank, the, the Zionists have essentially created uh, settlements all mm -hmm. throughout the West Bank. And, you know, you think of settlements, you think, well, you know, we got this notion of cowboys and Indians in our head. <laughs> you know, maybe they got a little shack here and, you know, there's a homestead. No, these are major cities with their own urban infrastructure that are built essentially on the land that was supposed to be the Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. And so you now have over 200 settlements, over 500,000 Zionists living in the West Bank. So they're on the best land. And even when they're not on the best land, they take the water from the land. They control the highway. So the highways in the West Bank are like walled highways that the, the West Bank Palestinians can't even use. Mm. And so I just ask any reasonable person, where is this second state supposed to be? if you've got settlements of Zionists all over the place where you were going to have a country that was going to be this second state. And you've got militant settlers who essentially, you know, walk around with, with the uh, AK-47s uh, taking pot shots at West Bank's West Bank Palestinians. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's, it, we don't, we don't see that in the media in this mm -hmm. country you don't you don't see images of the west bank those settlements you don't see the areas the bantu stans mm -hmm. that the palestinians have been forced to, to live on in the west bank they're supposed to country and gaza and the west bank aren't even connected physically <laughs> so, and, and, and i love your continuing to emphasize the this historical continuum and, and hopefully we'll find some some solutions perhaps not not in our lifetime i was just thinking dr fred as you were speaking with uh you know uh president carter's wife just recently passed yeah. away and and just urged people also just to to, to just, just google president carter and the books that he wrote after mm -hmm. leaving office and his efforts during office about apartheid in that area of the world you have a former president that laid his legacy out in his the last 20 or so years of his life about this apartheid taking place yeah. in, in Israel. Yeah, and you know, I, I took a little point of personal privilege in my article because I worked at the White House in night from 1978 to 1979. And I started at the Council of Economic Advisors in September of 1978. Well, September of 1978 was when you had the Camp David Accords signed. Mm -hmm with President Carter and Anwar Sadat of, of Egypt. And the 
um, you know, Sadat paid paid for that agreement with his life. That's right. So he was assassinated about two years after that agreement was signed. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that they didn't, I mean, that was an agreement between Israel and Egypt to essentially not fight. And that that agreement, that peace agreement is still essentially working. So there, that provided some hope. And President Carter deserves a lot of credit for that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's still in effect. And so Egypt and Israel have not had a war since 1978. Um, and they were the primary protagonist in all of the previous wars mm -hmm. in Egypt, mm -hmm. being contiguous countries. But you haven't had that. But one of the things the Camp David Accord didn't do, and, and they didn't want to touch it because they knew how difficult this issue was, they didn't want to deal with the Palestinian issue uh, because they felt that that was too difficult. Let's solve the Egyptian-Israeli mm -hmm. issue and let's come back. Let's agree to come back to it. And mm -hmm. that's where the Oslo Accords come in. Indeed. Okay. So, uh, you know, that happened um, about 12, 13 years later. Right. Um, but, you know, so that's a, that that's some of that history. And again, another connection is, you know, uh, in, 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 uh, re in respect in, to my, my Native American lineage, um, this this crisis in the Middle East is also reminiscent, historically reminiscent, spiritually reminiscent of the the treatment of Native American nations throughout American history. Right, and the Trail of Tears in particular. Absolutely. So, and that wasn't the only, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, essentially uh, stealing of of Native land because that's what it came down to. Right. And so the similarities are the same. It's about land and whose land is it? And and, you know, what we've seen in sort of, um, uh, you know, this is not just a Western thing. This is about power and military might. But the the ones with the biggest guns, the most guns are the ones who write the laws are the right. ones who essentially, you know, uh, take the land. And that's what's happening in Palestine and Israel today. It's the ones that have the biggest guns, the most guns, the most powerful weapons that are controlling the the situation here. It's not about you know who's who's right or wrong. It's about who's got the guns. Indeed, and you know, and and just by nuance, you you didn't articulate a wounded knee, but people might yeah. want to refer to wounded knee, or even. Uh, Oklahoma was a territory before it became became a state because oil was discovered. There you had prof to profit motive, and so so just re remind people about if you do, do you have the article there in front of you or in your I, I don't have it in front of me, but but but, but uh, the just remind people about you, you quoted Andrew Jackson, and I uh, thought that was so helpful because it's so easy for us now five years, ten years, hundred years later to to think about why did this person say this and to, to impose our moral judgment and, and today on those people. But, but Andrew was speaking from the heart. Yep. You know, he, 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 he was speaking to his, his, uh, his audience. Um, he wanted to be, wanted to re remain in power. And as you say, that's the frightening thing about now, some of the 
the folks on the other side with, with Nikki Haley also kind of being in, in the front running. Absolutely. I won't, I will paraphrase and I, I encourage your viewers, your listeners to, to do their own research. I mm. tell people all the time, you don't have to believe what I say and take it, do your own research, find mm -hmm. out for yourself. But I knew from some earlier research that I had done that, you know, before Andrew Jackson became president, I believe it was in 1928, um, he was essentially the war hero, quote, the war hero in the War of 1812. Yeah, he was an Indian killer. He, he had, Indian killer. He, he was and, branded. But he was the, the general who led the fight of the final battle of the War of 1812, which was the Battle of New Orleans. And and so that cemented his um, his stature and really catapulted him to be becoming sort of president a few years later. Um, but after the uh, the War of 1812, uh, he was involved still in the military uh, fighting the Seminoles mm -hmm. in Florida. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, the Seminoles were essentially made up of of tribes, uh, the Creeks, uh, the Choctaw, some native Floridian uh, natives, and escaped slaves. Mm -hmm. And so you had this mix of people who became the Seminoles. Uh, but um, Andrew Jackson said some interesting things in his correspondence while he was a general uh, for the U.S. military fighting the Seminoles and the Spanish, because you see what was going on. The, Sp uh, the, the Sp Spain used to own, used to control Florida, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and Spain had a different relationship with blacks. They basically told uh, slaves, blacks in America, that if you got to Spain, if you got to Florida, um, you were free. <laughs> and so. You know, a lot of blacks, we talk about the Underground Railroad, a lot of blacks think of the Underground Railroad going to Canada. And that's true. But if you were in in South Carolina, Georgia, uh, 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 Alabama, your your focus was getting to Florida mm -hmm. because you could get to Florida and, and be free. But the United States was fighting the Spanish and 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 their and their and their friends, the Seminoles, to take Florida. Um and one of his letters back to uh, somebody at the War Department was, and he didn't use, I'm going to clean up his language, but he, he basically said, you sent me down here to fight uh, Indians, and all I'm fighting is Black people. Mm. So that's that's kind of revealing mm -hmm. that, you know, there were that many Black people that, where'd they come from? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were escaped mm -hmm. slaves who were who were fighting for their freedom. And so when, so he had this, Jackson had this experience and what I quoted was his, he was now president. And I, what I quoted was his speech to Congress when the Congress passed the Indian Removal Act. Yes. And the Indian Removal Act basically said, we're going to push what were called the five civilized tribes out of the Southeast. They can go to Oklahoma but they got to get out of here. And so that was the, the Cherokees, the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, uh, the Seminoles. And um, there was one other, 
forgot the other one. But there were five of those mm -hmm. civilized tribes. So that was uh, that was Andrew Jackson. I think it's also interesting to note that he was elected president in 1828, which was the first time that white men who didn't own property could mm. vote for the president. Mm -hmm. You know which president? The former president, Donald Trump, whose image he kept on his desk. Yep, he kept kept the bust Andrew of Andrew Jackson. Kept, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, he was he was very happy to uh, to to promote Andrew Jackson. That's right. Let's just take a take take a deep breath for a second. So much you've you've shared with us, uh, and these are such crisis times. For if you, if you were at Brandeis now or back at at, a, at Sacred Heart or, or at UConn or even up at Tuck or even at Quinnipiac, what would you want to say to the students? Because this is, there, there certainly is evidence that we haven't solved the problem and that people have tried. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what would you want to want to say to them uh, if the student is interested in political science or running for office or uh, creating a social movement or participating participating in any freedom struggles? What would you like to kind of kind of say to them so that they would not necessarily feel discouraged, but be realistic and to kind of think about their imagination and creativity for the kind of world they would like to see? Great question. And, you know, I've been giving this a lot of thought and I've written about this topic as well. And, you know, um, there's been many you know, Black Lives Matter and other movements mm -hmm. that we've experienced, the civil rights movement. But one of the common phrases that you would hear recently was no justice, no peace, right? Well, I actually think no no love, no justice. Mm. And you know, uh, and I think you can you can go back to Martin Luther King, to Gandhi, to Nelson Mandela, and and understand, you know, we're not talking romantic love here. Mm -hmm. We're talking human respect and human love. And human love doesn't allow you to pick up a gun and kill anybody. Mm. It's just, it just doesn't, it, those are two inconsistent things. You don't do it. And I, I would encourage and challenge younger people with the, the notion, first of all, I would say we have failed. Our mm. generation has failed. We, we have, we have not left the world a more peaceful place than earlier generations uh, we have not solved what you said earlier was this this illness of violence mm. uh, violence at the individual level and violence at the at the societal level mm -hmm. um we have to cure that uh i i i am i don't think that it is natural uh in the sense that we can't avoid it um because I just don't, I don't buy it. Um, and I think the real challenge that young leaders and the future generation of leaders really needs to come to terms with is, you know, how do we uh, promote love? Mm. Mm. And, you know, that sounds some to many people, oh, that's pie in the sky, that's, you know, utopian, uh, you know, it's not going to happen. Uh, who's going to do that? And, um, yeah, but I think that really is the only solution here. Mm. Mm. Um, 
and you know, and I'm I'm not a a religious person, uh, so I don't I'm not speaking from a particular religious perspective to come mm -hmm. to that conclusion. That just to me is common sense. Mm. Mm. That you know we we can choose how we interact with people. What if I mean Israel did not have to respond the way it did after October 7th. They didn't have to do that. There that was a reaction to and an understandable reaction. But that was a reaction and it wasn't the only possible reaction. And we have to ask ourselves that in every situation. Mm -hmm. But we have a tendency in human society to allow people to to gain positions of power who are against the principles of love and justice. Mm. And that has to stop. Mm. And so that that's what I would challenge that's what I would say to to a young audience. And and look at all of the look at all of the the conflicts at the individual level and at the the societal level that if instead of dropping a bomb what if you know i was thinking about this you can't you can't drop uh cartons of milk or or you know electric or electrical or heat to somebody who's cold or or coolness to somebody who's hot or water to somebody who's thirsty or food to somebody who's hungry but what if we respond in that manner in mm -hmm. in, in giving mm -hmm. as opposed to killing yeah and what would happen i mean what would have happened if israel had said okay we're not gonna bomb gaza we're gonna help gaza mm. now internally they would say no that's crazy we got to go get them <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they did us wrong we're gonna do them wrong but what if they had taken um a a different approach how would that have, could that have brought healing? Yes. And yeah. that's what, that's what Mandela did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. The uh, the number of journalists that, that have been killed in this recent conflict and the number of UN uh, employees that just really kind of not separate apart from the hostages, et cetera, and the thousands of people that have died so far. Uh, I, I don't necessarily want to, end on a somber note, but I do want to go to go to 2024 mm -hmm. because this next 14 or so months, 13 months are gonna from the from the media standpoint, from the confusion, from the from the chaos, from people's uh, psychic uh, positions in their lives, it's really is it, it's a, it's a treacherous slope. Yeah. Um, and I just like to remind folks that I call the former president 145th. 145th won more votes than any sitting president before he lost. Biden received more votes, but 145th received more votes than any previous incumbent president. Mm -hmm. So, he, so just remind people that that army of his loyal, loyal devotees or, or his his disciples are still out there, as we can see in some of these various yeah. polls. Uh, but it's very scary. Uh, many academics have talked. You mentioned Argentina. Argentina just had a right wing election. Yep. Uh, the, uh, Holland, 
yeah. a, a recent small countries, but but it, it, we can see this this wave. So whether we're repeating uh, nineteen thirty eight, whether we're going to appeasement or whether we're going to try to um, move forward. Lastly, there's a book um, uh, at Yale Law School professor about what America taught Hitler. Mm. What America taught Hitler. Absolutely. Uh, so let, let's share a little bit. I guess I guess what I'm trying to I want to give you a chance to kind of think in your mind and these, you know put put yourself at the in the White House right now and also from the students and even from an economic development standpoint, just the impact of oil. You, you reference you reference World War World War World War One, and you could have just spoke for another fifty minutes about about yep. the oil and, and books by Daniel Yergin, yep, et cetera. And we, we're dealing with this oil issue even now. And some people suggest that the uh, the Hamas response was in reaction to Israel and Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. uh, beginning to talk. So I want to give you for the next ten or so minutes uh, as we conclude. Just whatever related thoughts that you might have um, in terms of where you are personally, emotionally, but also where you where you see things people what what do you think people should think about, discuss, have a group about research? Uh, because if you're eligible, even if you're not eligible to vote in uh, next year, this is going to be very very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, um, thank you for that. Uh, I I would. I encourage, again, as I said earlier, I encourage people to do research. What we have now, and this is where we, I mean, technology has advanced significantly yes. since you and I, you and I were in, in college. Uh, there's a lot more information at our fingertips. Um, and I, I, I'm excited about the ability to learn efficiently. Mm that's possible now. Um, and I really encourage young people uh, to, to literally ask questions mm. um, and to expose themselves to multiple points of view. Mm -hmm. And so not to just, and that's one of the problems that we have uh, in, 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 our, in our culture today is that you know we have kind of gone into camps you got mm. this group and that group and this group doesn't doesn't uh doesn't understand that group and vice versa and this group has its news and that group has its news and those things are just very different well i think if you're going to be um a mature intellect you've got to be able to hold up more as I said, it's been said before, you got to be able to hold up uh, more than one idea at a time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and consider multiple ideas. And one may be better than the other, but you've come to that conclusion based on your, your own research, your own analysis. And so, and I don't, I think that's possible at a young age. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's not what we're doing. So I think, um, as as a black man in America, um, I would like to spend more of my remaining time really providing uh, educational support, mm. intellectual support to uh, young people so, so that they will be better equipped mm -hmm. uh, to navigate uh, this very complex world. Because, you know, you have some choices here. We have choices. 
you can just kind of digest what's been told to you and accept it and and go on and, and you know you might have a a fairly uneventful life right or you can you know look at at all of the information that that you're observing and seeing and and ask questions like well how can we improve things indeed and that's where i think that that only comes from people who are curious mm -hmm. who are intellectually curious who who really want to know how things are working or why they are with the why is why certain things are happening the way they're happening so i'm excited about that potential to uh to reach young people in ways that we couldn't do yes 30 40 years ago and things like what you're doing on on this podcast is is something that we didn't have available to us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if, if you wanted to learn something, you went to school and that was it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, or you read this paper because you had one paper in town usually. And, and that was your, that was your source of information. This was pre-internet. Now, now you can, you can choose. And so, you know, I've been telling a lot of my friends and family on this particular issue of the Middle East and really almost any other thing. But let's look at this particular issue in the Middle East. I tell people, you know, watch the mainstream media, get their perspective, but also go to Al Jazeera mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and see what they're saying. And what you'll see on Al Jazeera is not what you're going to see on MSNBC or CNN or Fox. Mm -hmm. You're going to see reporters. You mentioned the reporters that have lost their lives. Well, let's, those are the Al Jazeera reporters that are losing their lives. Mm -hmm. And the media from other outlets, uh, CNN and those other companies, they don't, they're not in Gaza. Except with the Israeli army holding their right. hand. Right. So they're not seeing what's going on. So you've got to see for yourself and then begin to ask questions. And, and so there's a lot of information out there. You just have to be curious enough to go look for it. So let's, let's, let's wind up if, if we could, Dr. Fred, just, I want to take you way back, but also current, because when you, when someone earns a PhD in any, uh, subject matter, they don't forget that they went through that arduous process. That's right. <laughs> you, you've uh, earned your PhD in economics, and certainly you have to think you see you have an economic lens um, for the future for, for young folks. I'm not going to ask you where society is going, and I'm not going to ask you about artificial intelligence or mm -hmm. or Oculus or anything. But this is a, certainly a new day. Any any pearls of wisdom for folks uh, that are, you know, graduating starting to get married, uh, just turn to their economic stability because it, it, much of what you've written and, and studied is about political forces impact, economic force. In fact, some people talk about political economy as being the phrase rather, yeah. than, just, rather than just politics. So, so. Yeah, um, you know, for folks getting started, I would actually um, advise them um, you know, Public Enemy had a song called Don't Believe the Hype. Mm. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and, and one of the things that I would encourage young people who are starting out and, and concerned about their financial health and their ability to generate wealth is, um, you know, wealth starts not with consumption, but with savings. Mm 
mm. and investment. Mm. That's how you generate wealth. And so you have a choice. You can consume or you can save. Mm. You can do both, but there's a there's a trade-off. The more mm. consumption that you have, the less savings you can have. The less savings you have, the less you have for investment. And so that's the formula. That's the formula for an individual. That's the formula for a country. Mm -hmm. so our economic growth as a country depends on how much money we as a country can save and invest in our future. And that's really the purpose of wealth is to consume, have the money so that you can consume more in the future. Mm. And so I would encourage young people, manage their consumption. Mm manage their desires and try to again going back to intellectual curiosity you know why do you want that hmm. why do you want that you know why is it why is it better i mean we're all guilty of it i buy stuff mm -hmm. i'm not saying you know become a hermit but you really got to ask yourself why do you buy what you buy and what what do you need and and what do you want to give to your successors Mm. Be, be that your children or the community that you want to provide for. Mm. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I, it just occurred to me, Dr. Fred, just as you were talking, I don't always do this, but we've known one another and I think you'll yeah. allow me to, if, if not throw a fastball at you, maybe not a curveball, maybe not a forkball. Uh, but you have two children that are involved with careers that I think kind of illustrate how we can use our imagination be professional, be successful, be contributing to society. You don't need to mention their names, of course, but uh, share with folks the two fields that they're in. I think that would be helpful for you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very proud of my children and their spouses. Mm. So my son is my oldest and he went out, you know, sometimes as children, you don't want to follow in your parents' footsteps Particularly, you know, there's always this history of fathers and sons. Yes. And I, you know, if I'd had my choices, you know, before he was born, I would say it'd be, it'd be great if he could, you know, become a better economist than me, mm -hmm. get a PhD and, and do better than I did because I was that in that sort of that first generation uh, of, of black economists that were coming out. And I would have loved for him to be a PhD economist. Well, he didn't become a PhD economist, but he came up, he became a close second. He's a PhD sociologist. Mm, mm, okay. mm. And he's doing great work. Uh, and, and he is, uh, in many respects, a much better scholar than I am. And I'm <laughs> very proud of him. Um, my daughter um, is, uh, is on the faculty at Harvard. And she's an architect. And, and she's doing great work. Um, and they, um, uh, I'm proud of both of them. And I mentioned their spouses. My son's wife is a, a rheumatologist, a physician. My daughter's husband, uh, was just, um, nominated by the president, president Biden to be the number two person at the Peace Corps. Indeed. Indeed. And so, you know, they're, they're on the, or the I, they're on a path that I couldn't be prouder of. And if I were to give any advice, you know, people ask, well, how did they, how did their, how did your children be, do so well in school, et cetera. And, and, 
and I think you know a lot of it is luck, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Some people might say, you know, I got prayer or whatever. But I'll I'll tell you a little. I mean, you see behind me, I got a lot of books. Yes, and that's not nearly all of them. But when my kids were growing up, and you know, we got different kinds of things going on now. But we would spend our Saturdays and Sundays often at Barnes and Noble. Mm. And we'd go in and I'd say, okay, you guys, we're going to stay here. We're going to be here for a couple of hours. You go, you know, read, read, look at, do anything you want. And you get, you can pick two things and we'll get that for you. And so they, from a very early age, developed an appreciation for books. Mm. They saw me reading. They saw my wife reading. Then they were, so they were, we were readers. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, one of the, the critical things for their success. Excellent, excellent. And I'm, I'm going to throw in as we conclude, Dr. Fred, uh, again, on a personal note, when you mentioned love, and people have so many different interpretations of agape love and mm. agape love and political love and personal love and uh, platonic love. Um, but when I saw, when I've seen you in the past uh, with your mother mm. uh, and right beside her side, that's that that that's love incarnate to, to, from for me. So absolutely, I guess when uh, you 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 may not be denominationally defined, but but you're you're part of the love the love pantheon. So thanks to you, thanks for kind of taking the time this afternoon, and I'm, I'm sure we'll uh, hopefully we'll, we'll lay lay eyes on one another in person soon, as absolutely. the old folks would say. Absolutely, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Doctor Fred. Okay, be well. All right, you too. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey. You're listening to the Tom Thicken Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio.